All right, you can grab your seat. I invite you to uh, grab your Bible and turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 4. I've been preaching here at Cornerstone for about uh, eight years now and have used multiple and various uh, creative visual things, but I have not gotten any responses like you folks and the army men. You, uh, you, you really like that stuff, which is, uh, which is great. I'm really glad that it could help. Uh, it seems to really help people sort it out. Uh, it's providing like a paradigm. You should know that David was not a World War II hero. <laughs> you should just be, 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 be aware of that. It's just an illustration, but uh, I'm, I'm glad it helps. It works really well. That being said, I'm going to give you a five-minute review of Second Samuel chapters 1 through 4. Are you ready? David got really mad at an Amalekite because he killed Saul when Saul told him to. And uh, he killed that Amalekite as a result. What we then find is that David uh, becomes the king of the lower half of Israel. I give, I give this map so you can see where the Philistines are. See right here? This is Philistia. And these are the bad guys that we're going to talk about more today. All right? The uh, Philistines live there, not the Philippines. The Philistines. These are, this is that same map. I didn't mean to do that. This is that same map, uh, as you can see here. It's just split up into the tribes of Israel. You've got to remember this is a tribal people. And uh, David goes from living in his enemy's territory, because that's the only place he could be safe from Saul, to actually moving and becoming the king of this lower half, this nation of Judah. And he sets up shop in Hebron, right there. Hebron is uh, located close to what Jerusalem is going to, where Jerusalem is going to be. This would have been the homeland for David. David is originally from Bethlehem. So he would have known this area. Hebron makes sense. And Hebron is also a, anyone? City of refuge. That's right. So it makes sense that a king that has been on the run and is newly anointed by only half of a nation so far goes to a city of refuge to stay, to stay safe. There were three key things that we needed to remember uh, when it came to 2 Samuel chapters uh, 2 and 3. And it was these three principles. That Hebron is a city of refuge. That Israel is a nation of tribes and that Israel is a warrior culture, right? This is a warrior culture. This is about coming into power through people dying and wars and all other kinds of things. Uh, diplomacy was generally done on the point of a sword. Uh, there wasn't much more beyond that. The key question that we asked last week was that David had proven his ability to win in battle, right? Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Saul was the leader of David's, or I'm sorry, David was the leader of Saul's army for a while. Um, and then when he was a, uh, a refugee, he started his own army, and this army was one of the greatest that the region had ever seen. So we know that he can win in battle, but they, did David have what it took to be king? That was the real question. And Second Samuel 2 and 3, as we saw last week, is loaded with like ethical issues. Like, is David right here? Where's David in this situation? Why is he letting uh, Joab sort of be the bad guy for him? Blah, 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 blah. So what happened in that whole situation was we, we, we see this question coming up again and again as David walks through these ethical issues. And this painting, it sort of is a good representation, I think, of who David was at this space in his life. Sort of undefined, emerging, some really, really good, rich, deep things. But at the same time, sort of this brokenness and this, uh, this is not King David like we think about in the glory years of Israel. Um, this is still a very much emerging King David. He's not even in Jerusalem yet. Um, he's, he's still in Hebron. He's still in hiding, but not in hiding. He's got the most powerful tribe on his side, but what about these other 10, 11 tribes that are sitting out there? Uh, what do we do with this? Um, and so there's this emergence that is happening in David, right? We know that David's a great warrior, and David asks of God, what should I do now after Saul dies? He says, go to Hebron, and so he goes to Hebron. When he gets to Hebron, um, he then asks the Lord, you know, what next? Where do we go from here? And so what we find is that in the midst of this, David is ruling here. This becomes known as House of David. And David is saying, okay, here I am in Hebron. What should I do next? Ishbosheth gets put into power by Abner, right? Abner and Ishbosheth are the rulers of the top 11 tribes, the northern tribes, right? All up in here has been very loyal to Saul. Judah was sort of iffy on Saul, but they came around. As you can see, Simeon is sort of contained in Judah, so it's hard for Simeon to be very autonomous on its own. But these other 10 tribes, as we come to know them, uh, are the north, and they're very, very loyal to King Saul and to these other guys that come, that rise up into power. Abner puts Saul's son Ishbosheth into power. 
Abner's the actual leader, though. Abner's the commander of Saul's armies. Ishbosheth is a 40-year-old yes-man who happens to be a son of Saul. So the house of David and the house of Saul come to war against one another. But instead of starting with an all-out war, they choose 12 guys from each tribe, and they decide to fight it out 12 on 12. And so each one kills the other. We find then that uh, as each one kills the other, actually a whole full-blown battle breaks out because all 12 guys on this side killed all 12 guys on this side, and vice versa. So now an actual battle ensues that finds Abner having to run away from the sons of Zeruiah. The sons of Zeruiah are Joab and Abishai and Azahel. Azahel is the youngest, and Azahel is swift like a gazelle. That's right, this guy can run, right? He's the Hussein Bolt of his day. And off he goes, chasing after Abner. Abner says to him, don't chase me anymore. Abner doesn't want to kill him. He throws his spear, the butt end of his spear, at Azahel. If he wanted to kill him, he would have thrown point end first. That's how you throw a spear. And uh, so Abner's either really dumb or making a point. And he's making a point. Problem is, is Azahel is swift as a gazelle. And all this forward motion, he meets all this other forward motion, and it pierces him right through his gut and comes out his back. Right? And this causes a stop to the battle. And Abner says to Joab and Abishai, who are still, who are still pursuing him, he says, all we're going to do is shed, shed each other's blood today. Let's put a stop to this insanity. Joab and Abishai say, okay, but they remember what's going to happen. Chapter 3 starts with, there was a civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David. The house of David becomes stronger and stronger. The house of Saul becomes weaker and weaker. The way that this evidences itself is through a massive conflict between Abner and Ishbosheth. Abner sees what is happening. He knows that David's getting stronger. He knows that he's getting weaker and that his people are getting weaker. So he goes into one of Ishbosheth's concubines and sleeps with her. Ishbosheth gets mad at him for sleeping with his own concubine, who he calls his father's concubine, to sort of play that power card. And Abner says, what, am I a dog that you're treating me like this, that we're having this scuffle? I'm going to turn against you now, and I'm going to go to your enemy, David. So Abner goes to his enemy, David, and says, David, I know you want the ten tribes on your side. If you want these ten tribes, I can give them to you. So David then says, let's do that. Let's make that treaty. And so Abner and David make a treaty together. Abner leaves the town of Hebron. Joab finds out that Abner was just there, and so Joab lures Abner into the gate of the city of refuge, just past the point where Abner could actually be safe, and kills him. How does he kill him? He stabs him in the stomach, just like Azahel died, right? And he reaps vengeance uh, for his brother Azahel. And that is chapters 2 and 3 of 2 Samuel. Now, chapters 4 and 5 are just, a, just, the story keeps right on going when it comes to that. Now, in the midst of all this is this key question, can David rule as a king? Can David rule as a king? It's always that. Can David actually rule as a king? And how's this whole Abner, Ishbosheth, top ten tribes, you know, uh, versus Judah, how's this going to work itself out? Take your text, go to 2 Samuel chapter 4. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baana, and the other was Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth is also counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled to his feet, in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. As she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. Lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Things are not looking good for the top ten, northern ten tribes of Israel. Because through the midst of all of this rigmarole of fighting and of being a warrior culture and a tribal culture, what has happened is that all of the lineage to the throne is, is pretty much dead. I mean, any title that God might have recognized through the house of Saul, these people have died. Right? The house of Saul, Saul died, Jonathan died, Abinadab and Malkishua, these are two guys that we see in 1 Samuel chapter 28, they're dead too, sons of Saul, and now Abner is dead, who was the actual leader of the north. The only two guys left that have any claim to the throne are these two, Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth. Ishbosheth is the yes man, Mephibosheth is, a, is at this point a five-year-old cripple, right, who has... They have army guys who, uh, it's like it's full, I couldn't believe that I could find an army guy in a wheelchair. <laughs> there's a whole army, as I've researched these JPEGs for this teaching, there's a whole army men culture. There's like, 
like, there, there's literally like these big, like, Napoleonic boards where you can buy your own army men, and you can, like, you can paint on them, and you can make stuff, and you can build whole, like, diorama scapes of army men. And they have everything you can imagine. Army men in wheelchairs, and army men in jeeps, and army men in tanks. It's, it's, it's an incredible thing. Um, the person that would do this kind of thing has got to be, like, so painstakingly given to detail. Just be amazing. Amazing. Go, go home and Google, like, army men culture, and you'll find stuff. It's crazy. Okay. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is a cripple. When Saul and Jonathan died, right, obviously, uh, then the house of Saul, because this is a warrior culture, a tribal culture, is in danger. So if somebody wants to grab the throne at this point, all they got to do is wipe out the rest of the line of Saul. And Saul's, nur- or, or Saul's son, Mephibosheth, has a nurse, five years old, who grabs him and runs. But as she's running, she drops him. And he becomes crippled in both of his feet. A cripple is not allowed to lead a nation, just to let you know. A cripple is not allowed to lead a nation of Israel. They have to be ceremonial. Ceremonially clean, but this whole lame concept thing becomes a theme through these two chapters. So pay attention to the concept of lameness um, when it comes to, and that means like actual, like physical lameness, not just really boring. So Mephibosheth is not able to take the throne. A is too young. B is a cripple. Ishbosheth doesn't want the throne to begin with, probably. He's just a weak yes man, but. Bottom line is, is he is the king that Abner just put into place through political power. Verse 5, now the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, Rechab, and Baana, set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. All right, it gets very hot in the afternoon, and this was a siesta culture as well. God bless them. Those people are on to something. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him where? In the summit. These people are very much into painful deaths. Like, there's nothing easy, e- easy here, you know? They don't cut his head off first. No, they stab him in the stomach first and wake him up, and then they cut his head off. Like I said, it's a warrior, brutal culture. When they came into the house, he, as he lay on his bed, they struck him and put him to death, and then beheaded him. That Hebrew word there literally means, like, sawed off roughly. Uh, they took his head and went by the way of the Araba all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. Now, if you think back to chapter 1, the Amalekite tried this same thing. He brought the crown and the armlet to, uh, to David. Saul, your enemy is dead. What did David do with that Amalekite? He had him killed. So here we have a very similar type of situation, right? We see that we have Ishbosheth who is, doesn't want to be the leader to begin with and isn't a good one. Abner ran everything, but now Abner's dead. So Ishbosheth is sort of on his own. In fact, his heart has now grown faint because Abner's not around anymore. Ishbosheth is lying on his bed trying to take an afternoon nap. These two men, by means of deception, Rechab and Baana, they come in and they say, we're here to get some wheat. When actually they go to his bedroom, they stab him in the stomach and then they roughly saw off his head. They then take that head to David. And they give the head to David. And say, here is your enemy. That's his head. <laughs> That's, it's amazing what you can do with iPhoto. And so, uh, so they chop off his head and they bring it to David. Now, who else has carried around a head? David. huh? David's hauled around Goliath's head for a while. You know? I, I mean, this is, look at what I've done. Look at my victory. Look at the pains that I've gone to to secure. You know, this is a, like we're talking, this is brutality. This is in your face, warrior tribal. This is a, it's a civilized society. It's just a different type of civilized society. Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy. David answered, verse 8, David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Remember, Abner was killed at Hebron and was buried at Hebron. And so now, Ishbosheth's head is now buried with Abner. It's actually a form of honor. David doesn't change at all in this, which is the point of chapter 4. 
which is David continues to honor authority. He continues to honor, he continues to honor the authority that God sets up. He continues to authority the, even the authority of someone that he might consider his enemy. He's at least an honorable man. Nothing else that David has going for him at any point in his life, when he falls with Bathsheba or when he takes that bad census, it, it's, it's David has honor and courage enough to look himself in the face and call a spade a spade even when he has sinned grievously. This is one of those places. I mean, David is just, he's simply a man of honor. And so this is not an honorable situation. And these two men have dishonored someone who was set up as king. doesn't matter how politically twisted it might have been. And so David, he has them killed. And he honorably buries Ishbosheth in the tomb of Abner. Everybody got it? That's chapter 4. Chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is a massive turning point, right? I mean, there's been all of this civil war, twistedness between the upper northern tribes and the lower southern tribe. David's had the allegiance here. He's had the allegiance down here, but not up here. But now, finally, after seven years and six months, right, David finally has what it is that God promised to him how many years before? And he was just a boy. It was pre-Goliath when David was anointed king of Israel. And this journey, I mean, he was probably around 15 when he was anointed king of Israel. And this journey that he has been on has seen this ups and downs of David being anointed, which, was, which is an up, right? And then David killing Goliath which is an up, up, up. And then David being made a worship leader, the chief worship leader in the king's court, more up. And then David having songs sung for him by the women of the city, up. And then David made the chief of the armies of Israel, way up. And then he's leading worship in the court one day and Saul tries to kill him with a spear, down. And then Saul chases him for four years through the wilderness, committing 3,500 special forces troops to just kill David. He's going down, 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 down. And then he can kill Saul. Here's a chance for an up. But he can't kill Saul because he's an honorable man, and I can't kill Saul. So here's all of this up and down and up and down. And now Saul and Jonathan are dead. Saul's dead. I could come to king. But he was a relationship that I had hoped would prosper, but it didn't. So that's a down. And here's my best friend Jonathan, and he's dead now, so that's a down. But... I can be the king of Israel now, so that's an up. And here's David, up and down. Anybody else ever feel like this in their lives? I mean, David gets it. This is how this guy's such a great poet. I mean, if you don't write poetry out of your heart and soul, you may as well not write poetry at all. Like, David gets it. David understands. David knows what it's like to trust God in the darkness. And he knows what it's like to rejoice with God on the mountaintop. David is as fully human as you will engage in the pages of Scripture, which is why you should be intimate with his life. You should know what it means for David to have walked through these things, because I'm telling you, every single one of our roads mirrors his. And his example to us in these ways is deep and rich, and finally, for him, things are coming together. Things are coming together. Now, maybe you've had this experience, too, which is that when you're in the valley and when things are really up and down and you're on the worst roller coaster ride of your entire life, God dependence comes almost easily. When is it that you have to be careful? When prosperity sets in, right? And this is what David's going to begin to learn. Remember that question. We know David could win in battle. I mean, battle's that hard valley, time of testing. But can he rule as king? What does it mean for him to rule as king? What does that look like? This is all going to begin to work itself out here in chapters 5, 6, and 7, culminating in chapter 11. So, 
I don't want to get ahead of myself. So the ten tribes come to him. These ten, they come to him, probably the elders of the tribes, and they say, David, we understand we're the same people, and you've commanded our own armies before. And so we're coming to you today telling you that we desire to anoint you as our king. And so a nation that has literally never been unified becomes unified. And this is known as the unified kingdom. And David's rule and Solomon's rule is known as the unified kingdom. It is the glory years of Israel. Israel becomes one of the most powerful nations, literally in the entire world, during its unified years. God is setting this nation up to proclaim his glory around the world. But, like we said, sometimes journeys are interesting toward the destiny that God has set out for you. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. Who else went to work at age 30? Jesus and, anyone else? Every priest in the tribe of Levi. You couldn't work until you were 30. You were discipled all the way up until that point. You became a man when you were 13. But then you had 17 years of training before you were released to that priestly role. So, at Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years, six months. At Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. 33 plus 7 equals 40, and 40 is the space of a generation in the Old Testament and New Testaments. Right? And so what the writer is saying is that David affected the entire way that a whole nation thought. His reign encompassed an entire generation of people. An entire generation of people grew up in the David culture. When David died, that nation looked like him. Verse 9, I'm very, sorry, verse 6. The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and lame shall not come into the house. David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. David built the city all around from the Milo inward, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. All right, so here in verse 6 of chapter 5 comes an introduction to a massive concept that is the typical, like, Old Testament writer, it just sort of, like, glosses over it, you know, just sort of, because he's writing to a contemporary audience, so these people would have known the emphasis of it and the importance of it. You and I do not know the importance of it and the emphasis of it being 2,000-some or 5,000-some years removed, and so it's important for us to stop and remember that when the text says the king and his men went to Jerusalem, we need to stop and pay attention to that, because prior to this, you, you, you have not heard of Jerusalem in a redemptive fashion. Jerusalem is the most important city in the entire Bible. Jerusalem is the most important city in the history of the world. Jerusalem will even get more important as Christ returns and sets up a new Jerusalem, right? So Jerusalem is, is a paradigm. Jerusalem is a way of thinking. Jerusalem is a city of cities. Jerusalem becomes the city of David, but then becomes the city of God himself. So when it says that David went up to Jerusalem, this is very, very important to understand the emphasis of this. Hebron is right down here, right in about the center of Judah. What was livable Judah anyway? Down here is all desert. Jerusalem's right up here on the, uh, on the, uh, that thing, the boundary between Judah and Benjamin. Jerusalem was a city. I mean, maybe that's obvious, but I'm just, we think of Jerusalem the way that God thinks of Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem, my home. At this point, it's just Jerusalem, uh, a tribal culture of people, you know? And uh, the only other time we've really seen this is in Joshua chapter 10. In Joshua 10, Joshua is leading the people of Israel in, and they go and fight in Jerusalem, and they don't take Jerusalem, they don't seal the victory, they don't cast the Jebusites out, they just sort of figure out how to live alongside of each other. That's the only other time that we've seen Jerusalem. 
In the Pentateuch, we don't see Jerusalem at all. At no point in time does God say in any of the Torah, make Jerusalem your capital. Make Jerusalem your home. Make Jerusalem my home. God never puts any emphasis on Jerusalem in the Torah. God never puts any emphasis on Jerusalem in, in the city of, or in the, uh, uh, the book of Joshua. It's just another city that the people didn't take. This is nothing special yet. David makes it special, which I think is really intriguing. David is a man who's after God's own heart. David is living in Hebron. And when it comes time for David to find a city to rule from, he essentially picks one. And God blesses his decision. Jerusalem is a city of Jebusites. It's politically a pretty smart spot because it's sort of on that boundary between Judah and Benjamin. But it's essentially just another pagan inhabited town. David chooses it. David goes up and fights against it. The Jebusites talk smack to him, right? They say, ah, a bunch of blind and lame people coming up against us. Well, then David says, we'll show you who's blind and lame because I know the secret. I know that you've got some really weak aqueduct systems. And if we can attack through the water shaft, then we can get in there, and we'll show you who's blind and lame. And so that's exactly what happens, just like the two towers in the Lord of the Rings, right? They find the weak spot, and they run in there with Joab and his army, and it's relatively quick work. The Jebusites don't even put up that much of a fight. The Jebusites do get defeated, though, and David lives in the stronghold and calls it, he renames it and calls it the city of David. David does not name Jerusalem the city of God. David names Jerusalem the city of David, and David seems to be just fine with God, and God seems to be just fine with David. Quick rabbit trail here. Psalm 37, chapter 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. We get, I think, very, very wrapped up about being in God's will. A lot of us live in fear of not being in God's will. A lot of us spend a lot of our lives questioning, what is God's will for my life? As though God made a treasure map, and like we have to follow it. Now, this is how we think of the Bible. I'm dead serious. And, and we've got to pour over this thing, and we've got to figure out what we're supposed to do or not supposed to do, and please, God, keep me in the center of your will, uh, so on and so forth. Psalm 37, 4 and 5, I think is the key to understanding this concept and being released from it. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Right? That does not mean that he gives you all the things that you think that you want. Properly translated, woodenly translated, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will put his desires in you. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he will bring them to pass. In other words, the desires that he put in you, he will bring them to pass. When you are after God's heart, God puts his desires in you. Therefore, when you are with God, when you are intimate with him, when you are inquiring of him, when you are, when, when you are connected to him, the things that you desire are things that he desires because you are with him. You are united in him. The problem comes when you're not delighting yourself in the Lord. That's when things get confusing. God is not trying to hide anything from you. In fact, he wants everything for you. His heart and favor are upon you. And he doesn't want you running around in the dark looking for a small flashlight that he hid somewhere so that you can see just in front of you so that you don't fall into a ditch that he has laid out for you because he's just that kind of guy. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will put his desires in you. Commit yourself to his ways, and he will bring them to pass. David is connected to God here. He is deeply connected to God. All this journey of pain has knit him so close to the heart of his father. So that when it comes to move, the question for David is not, God, where do you want me to move? The question for God is, where do you want to go? Jerusalem. Yep. All right. You said Jerusalem, David. You call it the city of David, and I'm going to change it and make it be the city of God. And God honors the heart of his son. 
the Jebusites, the pagans who lived there, they get cast out. David comes in, and he becomes, verse 10, greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was what? Was with him. Right? They are connected. They are intimate. They are together. God and David are understanding one another's hearts. And David rules confidently as a result of that. David took, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 11. And uh, this is verse 11. You should know this in the text. Verse 11 of chapter 5 is where the story of David stops being chronological and starts becoming thematic. There's going to be stuff that happens in the space of like six verses that probably took something like 10 years to happen. But it's important for you to know that it happened, but the writer doesn't want to spend a lot of time on it. There's other things that, he, that happened in two days that he, you know, he writes about for four chapters because it becomes thematic. This is a switch. So a lot of what we're going to see is not necessarily this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It's here's how David fought the Philistines. Here's what the sin with Bathsheba was like. This is what happened when Absalom tried to take over the kingdom. Right? It becomes thematic at this point. Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, cedar trees also, and carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom. Why? For the sake of his people Israel. Again and again and again. God is for you. God is for his people. God desires, Psalm chapter 8, to see you, his children, crowned with honor and glory. We live our whole lives thinking, how can I falsely humble and belittle myself to other Christians so that they know that I love God more than them? That is the message from the enemy. Because God wants you crowned with glory and honor. He also wants you to know where that glory and honor came from. So that he receives the glory and honor that is due to him. God is for his people. God desires to see the nation of Israel, to see the church crowned and radiant and beautiful and purposeful and alive and free. He does not want you weighed down with all kinds of religious extremities and other things tacked on, living in fear or worry, trying to find God's will for your life. He wants you living in fullness of joy. This is God's plan for you. David is just a perfect example of it. But again, just for what it's worth, the key to this entire thing is that God stays first. When we are not delighting ourselves in the Lord, when we are not with God, when we choose against his kingdom, it's not that God is like, oh, I'm going to get you now. It's that there's consequences. It's that God's laws are true and right and just. And when we work against the government of God, we do find ourselves with the consequences that come as a result of that. David has a son that dies because he uh, sins with Bathsheba. This is not God going, I hate you, David. This is what happened as a result of a transgression against the government of God. Again, not trying to belabor a point here, but trying to belabor a point. This is a setting up of Jerusalem. We got to see this because Jerusalem from this point on becomes so important. The most important city in the whole wide world. Jerusalem, this is ancient Jerusalem. This would have been just after the time that David would have taken it over. It's a map, right? And so uh, out here on this big outer rim is what the ancient city of Jerusalem would have looked like around the time of Jesus, right? It would have, it would have spread some. Here is what Solomon makes it. Solomon takes it from being just this lower portion to even this bigger portion, and he puts his palace right there. But when it comes to the actual city that David conquered, what we're talking about uh, are these two bottom areas right down here, where it says lower city and upper city. This is Zion. This is Jerusalem. You ever notice how they're interchangeable, particularly the psalmist? He always talks about Jerusalem and Zion in the same way. Jerusalem and Mount Zion, like is Mount Zion a nickname for Jerusalem or something like that? Like Philadelphia and the city of brotherly love, these kinds of ideas. Uh, well, sort of, but not really. Zion is the fortress that is contained within Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem is where the people live. Zion is the domain. When, when David writes about the Lord is my fortress, he is thinking about a literal fortress that is called Mount Zion. When you and I take refuge in Mount Zion, we are protected because of God's fortressness. He is our refuge. That's Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a defensible, strongly held, fortified position with God. Jerusalem means that you're part of his people. Mount Zion is contained within Jerusalem. Mount Zion and Jerusalem are deeply, deeply important. Take your text. Turn over to chapter 48 of Psalms. This is more David here. Verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain is beautiful in elevation. It is the joy of the whole earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a what? As a fortress. Flip back a few more psalms to chapter 87. Mount Zion also comes to be known as the place where all the people of God dwell. Verse 5, it, And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. So Mount Zion is an actual place in Jerusalem that is a fortified city. Mount Zion also becomes the spiritual place the people of God are protected. Chapter 87 says that it is a spiritual place where people are born out of and inhabit and become a part of. We would always, particularly as Jewish people, Jewish people would say Jerusalem is ours. Psalm 87 says this one and that one. This one over here, that one over there. All Christians, all of God's people, all of followers of Jesus and the name of Yahweh are born out of Mount Zion and therefore are protected by God. It is the place that the enemy does not have a right to. It is the place that you are truly safe. Also, note this. God chooses a city. Have you ever noticed, at the end of all things, what is the one thing that God keeps? A city. He doesn't keep a big plot of spacious ground. God's not a million acres of open space kind of guy. He's very, very much a city person. Right? This is about his people being together in close proximity with him. Now, he's very much a country person when it comes to speaking. There's this dichotomy in Scripture. God speaks in the country, and he moves in the city. And if you try and have one without the other, you're stuck. But God speaks in the country. Think about it. Moses goes out in the country, and he hears from God. Jesus goes out into the hills and the desert, and he hears from God. If there is not time for you to be set apart and pulled away and to be alone in a spacious environment with God, then you won't hear from God. If all you're about is mission and getting it done and being all about the culture making of the city and all the beauty that's inherent in it and just pushing, pushing, pushing into cityness, then you're going to miss God's voice. If all you do is sit out in the country and choose to be a useless monk for the rest of your life, you're never going to affect people for the kingdom of God. You live in these two things together. It's a paradigm. It's a way of thinking. God builds a city and the new Jerusalem is at hand. All right, Jerusalem becomes this, this, this idea it becomes this formational, spiritual place for the people of God. And when you and I are adopted into the body of Christ, Jerusalem becomes our home. God is there. And it is his new Jerusalem where we will truly and finally rest. Remember what Jesus says as he looks over Jerusalem? He weeps over her. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have cared for you but you would not have it. And then Jerusalem kills him. And he still wants to make a new one. Like his heart for his people is so strong and so good. Verse 11. David becomes famous in the area. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, which is way up north, Send him a bunch of stuff so that he can build his palace, which David does. Verse 13, this is a bummer. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron 
and more sons and daughters are born to David. These are the names of those who are born to him in Jerusalem. Shammuah, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, El- Elishua, Nephig, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. Uh, David's Achilles heel is women. And that's not the fault of women. David has a... David has a deep grasp on the concept of intimacy. Like, he, he really understands intimacy. It's how he engages God the way that he does. It's how he writes the kind of poetry that he does. It's how he leads so effectively. Because he is so present and right there. But there is always this dark spot within him where it just seems like intimacy with God is never quite enough. And so he looks for intimacy somewhere else. Folks, like I said, he's such a great human to learn from. Because, I mean, does anybody here resonate with that? That, that like, yeah, I, I love God, I love the people around me, but there's still a piece of me that feels like it needs to be met by something other than God. And for David, for David, it's women. For David, it's wives and concubines and what he feels entitled to, particularly when it comes to sexuality. And I think that actually is the case for a lot of us. But there can be lots of things to meet intimate needs, right? And there can be lots of things to meet those other places of intimacy that we uh, prefer not to think about or to go to. They generally come up in our lives as addictions or favorite sins, Hebrews 12 talks about the besetting sins that so easily ensnare us, those kinds of things. It's something that makes us feel met, that makes us feel fulfilled, that makes us feel complete. And it can be something as um, personally engaging and hurtful as lots of concubines and wives and lots of sex, which today manifests itself in pornography more often than not. It can also be issues with uh, other things. It can be food. Overeating or an eating disorder that's undereating and starvation, self-hurt. It can be workaholism. It can be beauty for the sake of beauty. It can be alcohol, drugs. It can be allowing your marriage to just go stagnant and finding intimacy in other ways. Anything, actually. Sports, shopping, looking cool making shallow friends and entertaining yourself with them, getting really busy with your kids' schedules so you never got to stop and look at each other or deal with the issues. There's all kinds of things that can get thrown into this mix, all of which are as harmful as concubines and wives become to David. It's very, very important that we stay non-judgmental of David because I'm telling you, this guy is a typical human, just like you and me. And the more that we allow ourselves to identify with him, and to enter into his struggle and pain and see ourselves in his story and our own addictions in his story and our own brokenness in his story and our own trust and mountaintops in his story, the more we're going to see God's rescue of us in these ways. But if we stay disconnected and the scriptures are just that book that we read on Sunday mornings together, whatever. All of us could have verses 13 to 16 written about us. Just fill in the blanks for yourself. Go ahead, read them. Read them to yourself and fill in the blanks and put in your intimate needs that you replace. And then what children are birthed as a result of that? What kind of pain, what kind of hurt, what kind of things get thrown into that? When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. Yeah, I was going to skip this, but I'm not going to skip it. You know why Jerusalem becomes so important? At least I think. This is, a, this is Jay's conjecture, by the way. That's why I was going to skip it. But I felt like God just said that my conjecture might be a good thing for you to conject on, too. So, um, which I don't know if that's a word at all. Um, this is Genesis 14. Abram's walking through the desert, and he comes across this guy who's a priest of the Most High God. His name is Melchizedek. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, 
Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Do you know what city Melchizedek, the king of Salem, was king of? Jerusalem, that's right. He was king of Salem. What's the last half of the word Jerusalem? Salem, that's right. If you take apart the word Salem, Salem is actually, comes from, is transitioned into Hebrew to be Shalom. Therefore, Jerusalem is the city of peace when it comes down to it, which comes straight back to Melchizedek. So if I'm conjecting in this situation and asking myself, why would David have chosen Jerusalem? It's because that's where Melchizedek engaged Abraham. And if there's any city in lower Judah that's going to have some kind of spiritual power to it, it's going to be this crazy place where this crazy guy who nobody actually knows if Melchizedek was even real um, or if Abraham was like engaging an angel or, or God himself in human form. Um, he's talked about again in Hebrews, but that doesn't help at all. In fact, actually, it actually clouds the issue some. Anyway, if I'm David and I'm looking for a spiritually alive, weird place to possibly set up at, it's going to be Jerusalem, the city of peace. What do we learn about Jesus? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. His government, the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of what? Prince of Peace. This does not mean that Jesus is the Prince of all of the feel-goodness in the world. That Jesus is, is Prince of all of the lack of conflict in the world. Actually, Jesus is all about making conflict. To call him Prince of Peace means he's King of Jerusalem. That's why the writer in Isaiah is using governmental words of the increase of his government and his peace, his Salome, his Salem. There will be no end. On the throne of who? On the throne of David. Where did David set up his throne? In Jerusalem and over his kingdom. Where is kingdom's Dave, where's David's kingdom ruled from? Jerusalem. To establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so David conquers Jerusalem and sets up his kingdom there. And God says, that's my son. That will be my kingdom. That's his throne. That will be my son's throne. This is someone who's after my heart. I am with him. And his city will be a city of peace. And my son will rule it because my son is the prince of peace. And of the increase of this Jerusalem government, there will be no end. And it will bless all the world. And all my children will be inhabitants of Jerusalem. And that's you and me. Where do you live? You live in Jerusalem. You should change your driver's license. Verse 17. That's not the word of the Lord. That's not a word of prophecy. Don't do that. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. They knew David. They knew David was a strong guy, and you get a king before he gets strong. Right? David had just been anointed king of all the tribes. If I'm the Philistine, I'm sitting back going, <laughs> Abner, he's got things going the way that we want it. If we can keep this kingdom divided, then everything will be just fine. Maybe it'll just end up being David ruling in the south and Abner and Ishbosheth ruling in the north. And then the kingdom suddenly becomes unified overnight. And the Philistines know if we're going to strike, we better strike now. Because this guy just got a united kingdom that he's going to be ruling over. The more time he gets, the more unified it's going to be. Let's move. And so they move. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had, had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them to my hand? The Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So that's the first Philistine battle that we read about. Notice what David does. The bad guys move into his land. And David does not go... The bad guys are in my kingdom. I'm going to go kill them. David stops, and what does he do? He inquires of the Lord. God, what should I do? This is a relatively obvious question, right, to any of the rest of us. This is sort of like, duh. David questions. God, what should I do? Should I go up? Yes, go up. And so he goes up. And they go up to the valley of Rephaim. Rephaim, by the way, would literally be translated the valley of zombies, which I just think is cool. David inquired the Lord, should I go up? 
will you give them up into my hand? David and the Lord said, go up, and I will give the Philistines into your hand. And that's what happens. David defeats them. Second battle of Philistines. David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. Now, who worships Baal? The Philistines worship Baal. So why would a place that is a victory for Yahweh be named after Baal? The answer is, don't get tricked by your Old Testament Hebrew. Baal simply means God. If you were to go to the Middle East and talk about God to someone there in Arabic, do you know what word you would use? Allah. That's right. You would have to call your God Allah because that's the name for God in Arabic. You might think that's a bit confusing. Well, I don't know much more about Arabic than that, so you have to figure it out. But I do know that Baal here means God, right? It, it, it's the generic word for God. There is Baal, the idol, certainly, but there is Baal, the word, that just simply is translated God. So don't get tricked up by these things. This is still a victory for Yahweh. They call the place Baal Perazim. Perazim means to break through. What, is, what does David say about the place? That when I fought, God showed up like a, a river bursting through the enemies, right? Like a dam has been built up, and all this water suddenly is released, and whoosh, off it goes through, and just wipes the enemies out. David wins a great battle at Baal Perazim, and the Philistines do what? Leave their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. The Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, And when David inquired of the Lord, notice he asks again, he said, you shall not go up. Oh, this is interesting. Because you would think maybe it's just one of those like cheesy relationships with God where it's like, hey, God, should I do this? Where it's just religion, you know, like I'm just checking in with God. I'm having my morning devotions. God, what do you want me to do today? But I don't actually want to hear what he has to say. I'm just checking in. Like we could do that with this if we wanted to and David's relationship with God because he inquires of God so very often. But with David, it's always real. With David, it's always alive. It's always engaging. And David is actually listening. It's not just to, oh, God, what do you want me to do with my day today? Off we go to battle. It's actually, God, what do you want me to do? What should I do? Every other time that David has inquired of God in this and said, God, should I go up against the Philistines? Do you know what God has said? Yes. 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 David could very well just simply blame this whole thing on principle. Well, it seems to be a principle in my life that when I need to fight the Philistines, I go fight the Philistines. God, should I do this? Yes, good. Off we go. Living by God's principles. Man, you can get so messed up living by God's principles. You should live by God's principles. God's principles are important. But what about when God wants to interject with a command? What about when God wants to tell you to do something nuts? What about, you know, really good stewardship? Take really good care of your stuff. Don't be extravagant. Live simply. The principle of stewardship. But then what do you do with Mary when she brings the $300 jar, $300 jar of alabaster and breaks it on Jesus' feet and Jesus is deeply pleased with her? It's a good thing she didn't live by principle or else Jesus would not have been anointed for his death. Right? This is a tension. We'll get more into this. I'm getting well ahead of myself here. What am I talking about? Um, I'm collecting... Inquiring of God. David inquires, and he inquires, and he actually inquires every time that he inquires. And this time God says, no. Don't go up. Do not just go out there and attack them. First off, go around them. This should not be a frontal assault. This should be a flanking motion. Get around behind the Philistines, and when you get around behind them, don't just rush headlong and try and kill them. Wait when you get there, right? Verse 22, verse 23, David inquired, should I go up? He sh- you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching, where? In the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Gabath to Gezer. This is, this is one of my favorite short stories in the life of David. Go, don't, don't go out. First David inquires. He stays connected. And then God says, 
do a flanking motion, right? Don't go out in the frontal assault. Go around the back of them, and you're going to roll them up this direction. But if you're going to do that, I mean, just any, be it modern or ancient military history would tell you that what you have to do, you've got to do quickly if you're going to do that. Because the last thing that you want is for the other guy's army to recognize that you're trying to flank them so that then all they got to do is pivot their army, and then it is a frontal assault. So if you're going to flank an army, you don't wait. You move. God says, go around and then sit there. And don't just sit there, but listen. Has anyone else ever been told to sit there and listen when clearly the problem was right in front of me? Like, yes, there is something here that needs to be attacked. And God says, no, just just sit and listen. And so he tells David to sit there and to listen when a menacing army is coming against his people. And so they're sitting there and listening, and he tells them to listen for something, the strangest thing. He tells them to listen for the marching through the balsam trees, which makes all the sense in the world, right? Because they're opposite the balsam trees, which means the Philistines are over there in the balsam trees or on the other side of the balsam trees. And so when you start to hear the marching in the balsam trees, then you'll know the Philistines are coming toward you. Then you should attack through the balsam trees. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say listen for the marching in the balsam trees. He says listen for the marching in the top of the balsam trees. If God sends an army, where's it going to come from? Up there. So you listen for the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, and then you'll know that I have roused my army against your enemies, and then you attack. This happens again, sort of-ish, in 2 Kings verse six, or chapter 6. I'll read it to you. The king of Syria is greatly troubled because a great army has come up against him. Right? And Elisha and his servant are caught in the middle of this. The servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, and behold, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. And the servant said to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This is a normal occurrence in the life of God's people in the Old Testament, that God shows up with armies and destroys evil. This is what God does for his people. This is what God does for you. God is for you. God is for you. But if you don't stay connected to God, then you will never know his favor. If you are living your life out of rote rhythm. If you are not actively engaging him, then you cannot actively know what it means to be intimate with God. You cannot know what it means to inquire of God. Throwing up Hail Mary prayers every now and then when you get in trouble is not going to cut it. You were not made for that. You were made to stop and wait and listen and be with your God. We see this in David time and time, and time again. David inquires of the Lord, and inquires of the Lord, and inquires of the Lord. These are just the ones in the first five chapters of 2 Samuel. That's all over 1 Samuel. David inquires, and he inquires, and he inquires, and he inquires. You know what happens at the end of chapter 5? He stops inquiring. And we're going to see what it looks for David to slide down a slippery slope very quickly from chapters 6 through 12. Jerusalem is actually the one that takes the hit for not inquiring of the Lord. This is a picture of Jerusalem in 70 AD, a painting, uh, an artist's rendering. David Rogers in 1850 painted this, simply called the Fall of Jerusalem. Here you can see Titus's army up here on the cliff as the Romans come and lay siege to Jerusalem and destroy the place. 
and what had been built into the most beautiful city in the world, built, built on inquiry of the Lord. Over a few thousand years of history of idol worship and running away from God, this is what the magnificent city of God is torn down to. It was made for this. And the choice is still yours. What Jerusalem will you inhabit? For that matter, what Jerusalem will you create? What Jerusalem will you choose for yourself? If you choose a Jerusalem full of idols and full of self-governance, if you choose an idol following the laws of humans, if you choose those addictions that want to take God's place in your life, if you choose anything other than Christ, then Jerusalem for you will fall apart. Jerusalem is meant to be a place of joy and of peace. It is God's city of peace. And it's meant to be the place where you are with your God. Where Mount Zion is your habitation. Where Jerusalem is your dwelling place. God wins a mighty, mighty victory for his people. And David leads them in that victory because he stays connected, because he inquires of God. Uh, you can come back up. You know who else does this? Is Jesus. Jesus is the connected one. Jesus is the one who understands what it means to walk in God's government to live in God's ways most fully. Jesus does not run to these other places, these other idols, these escapes, these addictions. Jesus, Jesus grasps on to his Father and refuses to let go. He does not let go for anything. Not for women and concubines. Not for war victories. Not for any of the things that David would tell us to be careful about. Jesus stays connected, and Jesus wins an ultimate victory. You and I have the same thing. You and I have the same way laid out for us. We can make gestures at God, or we can choose to be with God. Either way, understand this, it will affect who you are. It will change things in your life. We cannot stay disconnected from God and then wonder where his presence is in our life. Because he wants presence. He wants to be with us. So much so that he calls us into his own city and says, be with me. So what does it look like for you to stay connected to God? What does it look like for you to inquire of the Lord? What does it look like for the gospel to find you again and again and again and for you to be called to be with God in his holy habitation on his mighty hill where nothing can touch you? That's his invitation for you today. Let's pray. God, draw us each to you. Fill us with the life of Christ. Connect us to your heart that we might know you and be found in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Baal Perazim means to break through, right? It means God breaks through. At Baal Perazim, the Philistines fell and they left their idols behind them, right? And David and his men carried them away and destroyed them. What is God trying to break through to you? to get to you, for you? What enemy that you know or don't know is God trying to break through? God is trying to burst through something to get you to leave your idols. Absolutely. There are idols that come against you and that want to find you and kill you. The last thing that they want for you is a city of peace where God is king. 
They desire to have you and to own you and to destroy you. God is a God who breaks through. There is no enemy that can stand against him. He will burst through it like a flood and will destroy it. But will you, will you fight? Will you join this? Will you be in God's work that he has for you? God desires to break through. He is trying to break through. Will you obey his call? Will you follow? God, thank you for your word to us today. Thank you for your servant, David, who has shown us what it means to be human with you. God, we bless you and ask for your breakthrough in our lives. God, I pray for each one of my brothers and sisters here at Cornerstone today who are here and who are not. God, awaken and enliven our hearts to receive your breakthrough. Open us to your victory that our idols might fall. God, I pray for freedom and for life and for a true dwelling place that is a city of peace, the city of our God, where you are Prince. In Jesus' name, amen.